You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Today's show is brought to you by our supporters on Patreon, including our Commodore class. That's Commodore's Obvious, Blood Groove, Torso and Pinches, Ironside, MD, Cameron, Elias, Scuttlebutt, Hartman, Gingrich, Clan Roland, Big Beard, Willie P., Schmarls, Proctor, Chairboat, Long Knives Logan, Cannon Monkey, Axios, Pitlock, Jack of the South Seas, Lost Again, The Navigator, Governor Roop, Gin Soaked Jim, Workman, Rum Runner, Skipper, Sawbones, Hayfay, Bull, Vertigon, Rumgut, and Bootstraps Bailey. And of course our quartermasters, Hunter, Buddy, Heather, Howard, and Crimson Davy Thunder. And I'd like to welcome our newest patrons, Ace Tie Pilot, Chuck Wagon Gamer, and Samantha, as well as our newest Commodores, Elias and Cameron. Hello. Welcome to the Pirate History Podcast. My name is Matt. Thank you for listening. One of the best books I've read about piracy, and I've read quite a few, is called Pirate Nests and the Rise of the British Empire, 1570-1740. It's by an excellent historian named Mark G. Hanna, who specializes in maritime history with an emphasis in piracy. As Madagascar enters the public eye in the late 1690s, and then with the rise of New Providence, we're going to be returning to that book as a reference more and more. There's a lot of good stuff in there, and I recommend picking up a copy if you're looking for a good, if in-depth read. It illustrates that there's something, well, not exactly unique to the British Empire, but something in their economic and political systems that lend themselves to piracy. You've got this kingdom shifting over to a parliamentary system. You've got a mercantile economy with tendrils of capitalism sneaking their way in, in both of which we can see parallels to and connections with piracy in the Golden Age. But more than all of that, really the overarching theme of the book is the imperial question. The English Empire, soon to be the British Empire, was expanding rapidly, really, really rapidly. The big cities, 
in the colonial world, you know, imperial centers like Boston or Kingston or Jamestown. They had royally sanctioned governors and a fair amount of support from the mother country. You've also got the company towns, most notably the East India Company fortress cities, as well as some other military outposts throughout the world. But all of that really is still only a fraction of the territory needed for the rate of English expansion. When you take into account the economic and religious and political disparities and the differing ideologies one finds within the English-speaking world, you needed more still. So you wind up with all of these unofficial colonies. You've got territories and frontiers that might or might not be sanctioned by the crown, but regardless, they get virtually no support whatsoever, at least not from home. Now, in those unofficial territories that lie farther inland or on the mainland, we tend to find the kind of rough-and-tumble men and women that we associate with frontier settlers. Hardy, religious, and usually farmers, trappers, and hunters. The naval front, though, distant islands and coastlines, that requires a different breed. They didn't have to be pirates, but in a world where everyone was snapping up territory, where Spain or Portugal had a claim on everything, and everyone was at war all the time, they did have to have ships with guns and know how to use them. And that means often, if not always, pirates. Or at least pirate-adjacent types. That's one of the early points in Pirate Nests and the Rise of the British Empire. Mark G. Hanna writes, quote, Historians and fiction writers alike have been inclined to categorize pirate as a rigid and readily identifiable type. The modern historiography of English piracy is contingent on the individual detached from human society, in rebellion with the norms and hierarchies presumed to define landed society. This model not only simplifies the notions of piracy at sea, but also implies a homogeneous society on land, with shared social values and economic or political interests. He continues, Even historians who attempt to transcend the romance of freebooters to make analytical arguments continue to describe pirates as detached apostates who renounced personal ties and social obligations on land. End quote. And that is a common problem, the assumption that a pirate as a social norm or construct even really exists. You know, most books on pirates start off with something like, What is a pirate? And of course, I'm guilty of all of that as well. Painting pirates with a broad brush, one that fits my particular biases. But I do try to work around it as much as possible. Because pirates were a part of the world. But by definition, they were simultaneously outcast. What's really fascinating to me, though, is the transition. What does it take to turn a group of more or less law-abiding citizens into outright outlaws. This is episode 234, Foundation Myths, Part 1. 
Today we're going to talk about what turned the Bahamas, and specifically New Providence Island, from a relatively respectable territory into the definitive pirate haven. When we left off, there was a smallish population of ne'er-do-wells in New Providence. Not pirates, necessarily, but certainly scavengers. They collected ambergris and salt, and they sent out divers to salvage wrecks of Spanish ships that had wrecked in the Bahamas. Now, salt, obviously, was always needed in the Age of Sail. It was used to produce hardtack, the super-tough ship's biscuit on most ships. It was also used to preserve meat. Without salt, you would starve to death. Ambergris is a substance formed in the gastrointestinal tract of sperm whales. It was, and occasionally still is, used in the production of high-end perfume. It's kind of illegal to use it in a lot of Western countries now, thanks to anti-whaling laws, and... Thanks to those same laws, we actually don't know that much about how it's actually produced biologically. But it wasn't until the 1660s and into the 1670s that the Western world was really beginning to figure out just how valuable ambergris could be as an ingredient in perfume. There were some few perfumeries that used ambergris in France, and at least one guy in Scotland, but it was still a pretty tightly held secret in the industry. You don't want your competitors to have your secret ingredient, after all. But it was an open enough secret that a ragtag group of sailors on New Providence Island knew to look for it. But I do wonder, were those ne'er-do-wells there by design, or was the ambergris a happy accident? It would be fascinating if the first sea-born scallywags on New Providence Island were there because of some perfumer in old Europe. But the Bahamas were a particularly noteworthy place to look for ambergris. It can be found on any shores in sperm whale territory. It's common in Japan, Australia, the Philippines, and Madagascar. But the Bahamas were particularly rich in ambergris. There is a lot of coastline in the archipelago, and a lot of clear, shallow water where you can find any that may be stuck or sunk. And beyond that, there are a lot of coral reefs in which ambergris might be found. The, the islands are almost kind of like a net designed to catch ambergris from all around the Atlantic world. But that net caught other things, namely, for our purposes, ships. The Bahamas were dangerous in the Age of Sail, still are, but worse in the Age of Sail. If you need an example of this, look at William Sail, the man who founded the colonies both on Eleuthera and New Providence Island. He shipwrecked on both of those islands. What made the Age of Sail so dangerous for the Bahamas was, well, the propulsion mechanism, the wind. Wind patterns could be and were dangerous all around the West Indies, but the Bahamas were maybe the worst. And I'm not talking just about storms and hurricanes and the like. I mean, regular winds could blow a ship off course and run her aground. Getting into the West Indies from the open Atlantic Ocean was a tricky bit of business, believe it or not. And naturally, that could vary depending on where you were coming from and where you were going, but... 
Let's say, for example, that you were a Spanish pilot headed to Havana. Or, if not Havana, Mexico works just as well. Now, there are a lot of approaches, and that depends on where you're coming from. If you were coming from Africa, you would most likely wind up in the Lesser Antilles, either the Windward Islands or the Leeward Islands. Now, you could sail into the open Caribbean Sea, but you probably weren't going to. There were dangerous doldrums in the Caribbean Sea that could leave you stranded on the open water, but even more than that, almost regardless of where you were going to in the West Indies, it was slower, thanks to the wind patterns, to take the open water. Unless you were stopping off at Cartagena or Maracaibo, that would delay your voyage by weeks. The much faster choice following the wind would be to continue on north and west, up the Atlantic Rim of the West Indies. Now, if you were headed for Jamaica, or Santo Domingo, or Petit Guave, you could head through the Mona Passage between Puerto Rico and Hispaniola, but you're not. You're heading for Havana. You could sail north of Hispaniola, and... In the early days of the Spanish-American Empire, this was a common choice, but it could be dangerous. The most famous ship ever to sail this route probably was the Nuestra Señora de la Concepción. Back in 1641, famously, she shipwrecked on an island in the southern Bahamas. Still, it was the most common route until about the 1650s. That was when a ragtag group of French exiles and buccaneers rose up on Tortuga and made the passage north of Hispaniola more and more dangerous. Still, there were several possible passages through the Greater Antilles that one might use. There was also the Windward Passage between Cuba and Hispaniola, a common haunt of pirates, but not how one would travel if going to Havana. None of those routes by the 1670s or so were preferred. Instead, most Spanish ships went what would have seemed out of the way, but given the geopolitical climate, made a lot more sense. Up near the northern end of the Bahamas, there were two potential passages into the West Indies. First, we have the Straits of Florida, between Florida and the Bahamas. This was most common for ships coming from or going to North America. That route was, as all passages into the West Indies were, dangerous. The most famous example of natural danger in the Straits of Florida was the wreck of the Spanish treasure ship, an Urca, in the 715 Spanish treasure fleet. That is a big story. A story for another day, though. Right now, we're going to focus on the other main route into the West Indies, the Northeast Providence Passage. That's a channel that passes between the Atlantic Ocean and the Caribbean Sea, just north of Eleuthera, New Providence Island, and the largest island in the Bahamas, Andros Island. Naturally, it was dangerous. There were coral reefs and shifting sandbars and wind patterns that could blow your ship off course, that was common everywhere, but it was safer than most. Step into the world of power, loyalty, 
and luck. I'm gonna make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you wanna get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of The Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play The Godfather, now at ChompaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. Napoleon Bonaparte rose from obscurity to become the most powerful and significant figure in modern history. Over 200 years after his death, people are still debating his legacy. He was a man of contradictions a tyrant and a reformer, a liberator and an oppressor, a revolutionary and a reactionary. His biography reads like a novel, and his influence is almost beyond measure. I'm Everett Rummage, host of the Age of Napoleon podcast, and every month I delve into the turbulent life and times of one of the greatest characters in history, and explore the world that shaped him in all its glory and tragedy. It's a story of great battles and campaigns, political intrigue, and massive social and economic change. But it's also a story about people, populated with remarkable characters. I hope you'll join me as I examine this fascinating era of history. Find The Age of Napoleon wherever you get your podcasts. By the 1670s, the Northeast Providence Passage had become the overwhelmingly most popular sea route into the West Indies. A lot of this had to do with the Franco-Dutch War, also known as the Third Anglo-Dutch War. You remember that conflict when a whole new generation of Brethren of the Coast arrived as privateers in the New World. Because everyone was fighting everyone, the Northeast Providence Passage served as a kind of a backdoor to the West Indies. But it became a more and more entrenched sea route, especially when that war ended and so many of those privateers turned to piracy. You have all of the pirates from Saint-Domingue, like Lauro de Graff, as well as their compatriots like Jan Willems and Thomas Paine. But then you have all of those pirates who would sail on the first Pacific adventure, John Coxon, Bartholomew Sharp, Edward Davis, that lot. Now they're all going to come to play in a minute, but for now... Their mere presence made the passage north of Providence Island more and more attractive to the Spanish. And, because it was such a dangerous sea route, there were wrecks, and those wrecks attracted scavengers. In the latter 1670s, thanks to all these new pirates and all of these wrecks that were happening, the balance between respectable slave-owning plantation owners inland on New Providence and the wreckers living near the coast, well, that balance shifted dramatically toward the wreckers. Dramatically enough, in fact, that it affected the government of the island. Officially, the governors of New Providence were supposed to be appointed by the Lord's Proprietor, mainly rich landowners out of Bermuda, Carolina, and a couple in England, and officially, they were appointed by the Lord's Proprietor. After William Sale finally left office, the Lord's Proprietor appointed a Sir John Hayden as governor. But, as far as I can tell, he never actually set foot in the Bahamas. He had estates in England and America to manage. He was an MP and had powerful friends in London, the governorship of the Bahamas was a nice piece of padding for his resume, 
but not really what you might call a job. In The Story of the Bahamas, Paul Albury writes, quote, Locally, the seamen, and he's talking about the scoundrels and wreckers, the seamen looked with great distaste on controls of any kind. Especially did they dislike paying shares of their proceeds to absentee landlords who never did anything for them except irritate them. End quote. Now, the tenure of this absentee governor lasted for 11 years, which is, of course, ridiculous, but that did give the town council in the Bahamas the ability to see to their own affairs. They governed themselves, and they even appointed their own governor. His name was John Wentworth. Officially speaking, Wentworth appears to have been recognized as a sort of acting governor, or maybe a deputy governor. At least he did deal with the Lord's proprietor on a number of occasions in a somewhat official capacity. We know this because the Lord's proprietor hated John Wentworth. He was a former privateers and had obvious sympathies for the wreckers. He supported the seafaring privateering lot on New Providence Island. He even had this habit of handing out privateering commissions of his own that allowed the wreckers of New Providence to, if they so desired, go out hunting. Now this was very illegal. First of all, they weren't at war. There was no reason to hand out wartime commissions. Second, Wentworth wasn't even really the governor. He had no royal authority to do anything. I like John Wentworth. Unfortunately, he's not going to last very long. The Lord's proprietor replaced him with a man who was more on their side, the side of the planters. When he arrived at Charlestown, this new governor found the locals living a, quote, lewd, licentious sort of life, and he promised to, quote, bring them to reason. That's a big job bringing the scoundrels of New Providence Island to reason, and it didn't go well for him. Within just a few months, this new governor found himself packed on board a ship and sent off to Jamaica, where he disappeared from the historic record forever. Once this interim governor was out of the picture, the Lord's proprietor decided to buckle down, really fix this situation. In 1680, they appointed a new governor who was going to actually do the job, who was going to take New Providence Island in hand, crush these scallywags if need be, and make it a profitable, God-fearing colony. This governor's name was... not important. He's not going to do any of that. He made big promises, none of which he managed to fulfill. In the meanwhile... The privateer set in New Providence appointed a governor whose name you do need to know, Robert Clark. Once again, he wasn't an officially appointed governor. He had no royal authority, but he was recognized as serving the duties of the governor by everyone. And at first, everybody seemed to be on board the Robert Clark train, at a meeting of the Lords of Trade and Plantations, we're talking about some bigwigs here, literally, Robert Clark was recorded as being a, quote, very honest, useful man. 
but he wasn't. When the Lords of Trade mentioned Robert Clark as an honest and useful man, it was because Robert Clark had some very good information about this stand-up sailor named Thomas Paine. Just a good guy, no trouble at all. You guys don't need to worry about Thomas Paine. He's not going to be among the worst pirates of the 1680s. But of course he was one of the worst pirates of the 1680s, though he was kind of a privateer. He did have a letter of mark, an illegal letter of mark, granted by Robert Clark, who did not have the authority to hand it out, but a bit of a legal shield. And Payne wasn't the only privateer that Robert Clark gave a commission to. Other luminaries include John Coxon. That was after John Coxon left the Pacific Adventure behind, after their raid on Panama. These were two of the bigger names, but they were by no means all of the privateers that Robert Clark was gathering. He was building kind of a privateer navy, not unlike that seen in Port Royal just a couple of decades earlier. The real prize, though, the big get for Governor Clark was Jan Willems, who had a falling out with the Tortuga pirates and moved on to the Bahamas. Now, their job was supposed to be mostly defensive. See, whenever a Spanish ship wrecked in the Bahamas, anywhere in the West Indies really, but in the Bahamas in this case, it was Spain's policy to send out a ship to reclaim the cargo as soon as possible. In the early days of the salvaging operations from New Providence, that means that the wreckers had to get out there as fast as possible, grab as much as they could, and... If they spied even a hint of sail on the horizon, beat a hasty retreat. But then all of these privateers, with expertise in fighting Spanish warships, well, they were there to defend the wreckers. When Spanish sails arrived on the scene, these privateers could sail out, distract them, lead them on a wild goose chase, and give the salvage operation as much time as they needed to get as much plunder as possible. Thanks to this defensive privateer armada, business was booming. With that extra coin came all of the amenities that the privateers had learned to expect in places like Tortuga and Port Royal. Establishments selling rum, establishments where you could gamble, and more than a few establishments offering pleasurable company. All of these amenities and the freedom offered at New Providence made the island more and more a popular spot for men of loose morals. But as more and more privateers were coming to New Providence, a problem arose. Those wrecks had done well for the relatively small salvage operations, but, you know, only so many Spanish ships wrecked in the Bahamas a year. You were only going to make a set amount of money, and it wasn't a lot of money. All of those rum mongers, gambling dens, and prostitutes realized that this place may have been a brief boom town, but it didn't look like it was going to last until, with Governor Clark's blessing, some of those privateers decided to go out hunting Spanish prizes. These privateers were far more brutal than any pirates we've met so far. Not because they enjoyed it, although maybe they did. 
Attacking the Spanish was an age-old English tradition, but they were brutal because they had to be. See, when they captured a Spanish ship, they weren't just going to steal some valuables and send the ship off with her crew mostly alive and unharmed. They killed every man on board, down to the cabin boys. Then they carried off the valuables and sank the ship off some lonely bank fairly far from New Providence Island. You can see the game here. To any Spaniards who might stumble upon the wreck, it looked like the ship had just run aground. You know, the crew got away, but they were lost at sea, or eaten by sharks, who knows. Then, those English scavengers picked the bones clean. Distasteful, yes, but they did not, as far as the evidence suggested, kill the crew. But of course they did. But it's not like the Spanish were stupid here. They knew something fishy was going on, but they couldn't quite prove it. Mostly because there were so many legitimate wrecks in the region, who's to say which was which, a scavenging raid and a piratical execution. But it was a young man from Maine named William Phipps that changed everything. His 1681 voyage to salvage the Concepcion ruffled a lot of feathers. It also pointed a very bright spotlight at New Providence and at Governor Clark. When Phipps stopped at New Providence to gather supplies, he did so with the aid of the governor, and all of the diplomatic fallout that followed Phipps' salvage operation, Governor Clark was frequently name-checked. This had probably less to do with Phipps and more to do with all of those murderous, piratical expeditions, but his name was on the radar. So the Lord's proprietor finally took action. They replaced Governor Clark. They tried to stabilize their little pirate nest. This news was relayed to the Lords of Trade in London in a letter from Governor Thomas Lynch of Jamaica. Lynch wrote, quote, I have already pointed out to you the danger that might follow from the granting of commissions of war by the Governor of New Providence. From a vessel that came in last week, I learned that Governor Clark is removed and one Lilbourne in his place, but I could not find out whether he means to continue the rapine or not. This fishing for wrecks draws all kinds of dissolute fellows to Providence. The Indies, in fact, are full of desperate rogues. The want of a frigate here has made pirates to increase in number and impudence. Privateering was a problem everywhere, but in the Bahamas knew Providence specifically. The lords of trade were particularly concerned. The new governor might have made some positive changes, but we will never know. He never even got a chance to take up the office. He did sail for New Providence and did make landfall in Charlestown, but just a few days after his arrival, a small fleet of Spanish ships arrived on the horizon. Next time we'll talk about that raid and some of the other pirates present and active in the early days of New Providence Island. I would like to thank everybody for listening. I'd like to thank everybody who has helped to support the show, everybody who has signed up to become a patron on Patreon, anybody who has left us ratings or reviews, and everybody who has recommended this show. Without all of you, we wouldn't be able to do this. Thank you. 
Our theme music was The Old Captain by the fantastic band Brillig. If you haven't checked them out yet, you absolutely should do so. You can find them at brillig.com.au. That's B-R-I-L-L-I-G.com.au. After you're done over there, why not check out our website at piratehistorypodcast.com. As always, and most importantly, thank you for listening. Tonight